Well, the sermon this morning, uh, the title is going to be misleading a little bit because the first thing that you think when you hear tough love is not what I mean this morning. I almost guarantee that. Um, in the text this morning, tough love does not mean what uh, usually you might mean or you hear people mean. Um, I've had a, a love-hate relationship with that phrase, tough love. Um, and that's because often what time people mean by tough love is not really love at all. What many people mean by tough love is treating people harshly or bluntly. We say it like it is. That's tough love. Um, some people think they need to be harsh with someone to teach them a lesson. And then they use the term tough love to justify their unpleasant behavior. So normally I shy away from using the phrase tough love. However, this morning I'm using the phrase in a different way. What I mean this morning when I say tough love is the type of love Jesus commands, which is not tough towards the receiver of the love, but tough toward the one for the one who's trying to show the love. Loving your enemies is tough love. Blessing those who curse you is tough love. Turning the other cheek, giving up the shirt off your back, those are tough love. Not that we are being tough on someone and saying they needed someone to love them by being tough, but rather it's very tough to live out this sort of love. Let's look at the Sermon on the Plain, as we talked about last week. It's, it's got similarities to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the Sermon on the Plain from Luke chapter 6. And we're going to continue where we left off last week, and we're going to see how tough it is to love like Jesus teaches people to love. So here's what it says at Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. But I say to you uh, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." This sort of love that Jesus is teaching here goes against almost every instinct of the human heart unless they've been transformed by the gospel. And even for those being transformed by the gospel, these acts of love are extremely difficult. Now, I want to make a note of something in the grammar of this passage because everybody loves to talk about grammar, I've noticed. Well... Maybe two of you. Anyway, 
There, we've got a couple teachers, they like grammar. There, so there's a number of um, what I'll refer to as imper- imperative commands in this passage. Now, I use a, a program called Logos Bible Software, um, and I have certain types of grammar that are highlighted in the biblical passages in certain ways, so that as I look at the passage, I can very quickly see uh, the type of grammatical words I'm looking at. Now, that may not be very interesting to you, but it's very interesting to me. Um, And in looking at this passage, there are quite a few imperative commands, which I have set using a highlighter that is called, in my program, on fire. (laughs) So these show up for me in red with yellow highlighting, so I cannot miss them. Some passages have one or two imperative commands. In this passage, there are many, and they are... Love, do, as in do good, bless, pray, offer, as in the other cheek, give, do not demand, do, as in do to others what you would have done to you, and again, love, do good, lend, and be merciful. Imperative commands. So why do I have the imperative commands highlighted that way, it's so that I can see in a certain passage when something is being demanded of someone. In this case, what Jesus is demanding of the disciples he's teaching, uh, and it clearly has application for all believers. So let us consider these commands of Jesus, these ways to love that are tough to do, and let us consider to ask his help to live out these commands in obedience, reverence, and love for the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. So let's go back to 27, and we'll begin there. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good good to those who hate you. So first we have, love your enemies. What? Love your enemies? Jesus, please. Is this really something you're asking of us, Lord? Well, yes, and not only that, Jesus demonstrated this kind of love to his enemies. Now, to be sure, sometimes Jesus loved his enemies by speaking truth to them, and sometimes he loved them by not retaliating against them, but here he calls on his disciples to love their enemies. I think it's important to note here that Jesus is not calling for us to have warm feelings towards our enemies. We often hear the word love and we associate that word only with our feelings, but we cannot always conjure up feelings of love. So we're not talking about love as in when you first fall in love, or brotherly love, or sisterly love. This is the type of love that is practically lived out. It's quite possible to love those in your family even when the feelings don't match, because no one has those feelings match 100% of the time, right? It simply means doing what you're able to do as you live in love towards them. So you may be having a bad day and go home and see there's something needed that will make life easier for your spouse or family members. You can meet that need even if you are not necessarily feeling warm and fuzzy toward them at the moment. Do not confuse the emotions of love with the actions of love. If you have an enemy, someone who is actively opposing you, trying to bring harm to you, you may not even be able to have warm feelings for them, but you can still act in a way that is loving toward them. And connected to that first imperative to love is the next imperative to do. 
Do good to those who hate you. This is yet another seemingly impossible thing to do in the nature of the human flesh. When you know someone hates you, your very nature will scream out for vengeance or to go on offense against the person or at least go on defense. Yet Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. It's important to understand that in this passage, Jesus is speaking of individuals dealing with individuals. There are times when the roles that individuals have do not allow them to abandon their responsibility in the role and to act as an individual. An easy example of this is a judge. A judge may be able to personally love, do good, bless, pray, etc., but if that same judge with every guilty criminal before him chose to let them off, citing the Gospels as the reason, he would not be considered a good judge, would he? And that's because God has ordained certain roles in society. And those positions of authority cannot act in a personal manner, for good or for bad, if it means acting in opposition to the rules of the position they are in. Another example that some of you may have sympathy with or no sympathy with would be a member of an HOA board. Right? As an HOA board member, if you are one, you may be able to forgive your neighbor for an infraction against the HOA covenant on the personal level, but if you do not enforce the covenant fairly, you would be acting in opposition to the position you were elected to. So examples like this could go on and on. A manager cannot forgive or show love to an employee in a way that goes against company rules or policy. A teacher in a school should not allow a student to treat them rudely and ignore bad behavior because it affects all the others around them. Elders and leaders in the church uh, may personally forgive someone, but they may, must follow biblical guidelines of leadership, which sometimes means that loving an unrepentant person means telling them they must leave the church. Even in the family, one family member should not be allowed to bully others in a way that all must just simply put up with wrong behavior and all in the name of loving or being good to those who hate you. So I hope you understand the differences here. What Jesus is talking about is a personal role, and sometimes your official role or other role may, may say you have to take action even while you personally forgive. So as we process these rules of living from Jesus together, we must keep in mind that obeying one part of Scripture should never con conflict with obeying another part of Scripture. Remember that these commands actually have more to do with the heart than anything. And they have to do with what you personally do with offenses against you. And sometimes what you can do personally, you cannot do as a representative or a leader who's obligated to follow through in accordance with their leadership responsibilities. Remembering that leadership also is ordained by God. Romans 13 tells us that leaders are given the sword. In other words, they're charged with keeping law and order and executing justice. However, while that leader must do what the office requires... On a personal level, he will find freedom in loving enemies and doing good and so forth. Our next imperative is in verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Bless is the next imperative. We should probably define what bless means in this case. We know that bless can mean a broad range of things to different people. It could mean giving gifts or favors to someone. It also can be a terminology that has more to do with speech. 
So the Lexham Bible Dictionary says it's the act of making a binding verbal pronouncement of good on another person or persons. In this case, it seems appropriate for us to understand this word bless. Jesus is saying that we should do what he modeled in his passion. Even from the cross, he pronounced forgiveness on his persecutors. The second part of verse 28 is paired with the first. Pray is another imperative command. Pray for those who abuse you. Not only did Jesus model this, but so did Stephen as he was being stoned for his profession of the gospel. We see this in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It gives the story of Stephen. And it says in Acts seven fifty nine and 60, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, forgive. Or, sorry, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That means he died. So how can we possibly do this in the midst of mistreatment, even to the death? Well, here's how Stephen did it. He was full of grace and power. He had received the power as Jesus had promised for those who would be his witnesses in Acts 1.8, where it said, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Stephen was there uh, when the power of God came down and here in Acts 6 to 7, he's acting in that power. Acts 6, 8 to 10, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who believed, or sorry, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand this wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. I want to be full of grace and power like Stephen. And so full of the spirit was Stephen that people could actually see it in him. Acts 6.15 says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. How do we obey the commands of Jesus? How do we love our enemies? How do we do good to those who hate us? How do we pray for those who abuse us? In the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. If, if we're to witness for Christ, even against strong opposition, we must be full of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the tough love that Jesus calls us to continues to be tough. But he will empower us by his Holy Spirit. In verse 29, he continues giving us things that are tough for us to do to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Imperative command here is offer. Offer the other cheek. Now, This verse has caused some Christians to think they're never to resist evil against them, and that's not the case. 
Jesus is not saying that if someone starts hitting you, you just stand there and, and keep getting hit. David dodged and ran from Saul. He didn't just say, oh, okay, I'll just stand here and let him kill me. Paul used his Roman citizenship to prevent himself from being flogged in at least one case in Acts, and probably other cases that are not written down. But he said, hey, hold on a minute here. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. He, he did resist unjust treatment. So it can't be saying that Jesus is telling us to just stand around and allow others to assault us or something like that. We can and should use legal means to protect our own bodies. Men should protect their families. And we should protect vulnerable people if called upon to do so. The strike on the cheek probably had to do with, in that day, someone using the back of their hand across the face as an insult, almost like an accusation. And if you did not retaliate to the something like that, it was like admitting you were as bad as the person slapping you said you were. So this is less about self-defense in the physical sense and more about resisting the urge to protect your own reputation or your own dignity. If someone calls you a horrible name or says you're one of those weird Jesus freaks, resist the temptation to defend yourself. Jesus said we would be blessed to be persecuted for his name's sake. David trusted in God to defend his reputation and his honor. So we must rest in committing ourselves to God for our protection and his defense of his children. The whole thing about the cloak is not necessarily about theft, but it may have had to do with lawsuits. In those days, you may have been required to give up your cloak or tunic as restitution until you could pay back something. And Jesus is telling his followers, if someone is trying to take them to court in that way, just submit to it. Remember that Jesus himself stood before Pilate and did not make a defense. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. The imperative here is give. Do not demand back what someone takes away from you. Again, we must be careful that we don't take this in a hyper-literal sense. Hyper-literal means that you, you say the words are there, and that's exactly what it means, and I have to apply it equally in all situations. If that were the case, then every true Christian would be completely broke, having given to everyone who begs. And most pastors will tell you of stories where someone has approached the church asking for help with something with an expectation that Christians ought to just give to anyone who asks. Some people actually do apply this in that way. Sometimes people even get mad if you don't give them what they ask, even when the need is not a valid church of use uh, or use of church benevolent funds. This is also not to say you shouldn't file a police report if someone robs your home. Remember that Scripture is never to be taken in a way that makes it contradict other Scripture. Scripture also teaches that we are to take care of our own families. What kind of a parent would you be if you gave all of your goods to beggars while your own children starved or didn't have clothes? So how do we take this teaching? Well, let's remind ourselves once again about the heart of the matter. Our desire should be to have whatever level of wealth we do have and manage our lives in such a way that we can be useful to others. And our responsibilities go outward. If you think of it in concentric circles, we have communities around us at different levels of closeness, and therefore we have different, responsible, different levels of responsibility to those. So your immediate circle, biblically, is your family. Take care of your family. Your, your next circle is... Biblically, the church family. 
then your local community, then your state or your nation, then the world outside. We may think of giving resources in the same way we are told to make disciples. Start with your family, then your local setting, then send the gospel outside. It isn't that you necessarily need to work your way out. Hopefully you can be involved in each area at the same time. If you are taking care of your family and you are helping others in the church and you are managing your life well enough to help others, then you will be more useful to those who may come to beg of you. And now we get to what's known as the golden rule, verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus took a very clear concept that was already in the Jewish community and refined it. You see, the rabbis taught something very similar here, except usually they taught this truth in sort of a negative sense. I don't mean it was negative in the sense that it was bad, but a negative do not rather than a do. Okay, So they would say that what you do not want others to do to you, do not do to them. That's not bad, right? Pretty good rule. Jesus takes that concept and turns it from being simply a do not to a do. Rather than passively not doing what we don't want done to us, we are to actively do for and to others what we would want them to do for and to us. It used to be a very simple thing that men would open the door for a woman or a child, and that was expected, part of the community agreement, so to speak. So young men were trained to do this. And certain polite things are still taught today, but again, the heart has much to do with why we are doing that. If we are polite in certain ways just because it's a social construct, it's the understanding that we have of the world around us, and we're supposed to you know, follow this rule, that's not a bad thing. But if we do it with a joyful and truly caring heart, that's much better. Instead of opening the door just because that's what my parents taught me to do, I open the door, hopefully, because I recognize that I would like someone to do that kindness for me. That is much better and more in keeping with what Jesus is saying here about the heart that we have towards others. And we call this the golden rule. Let us remember that the source of the golden rule is the one who is the source of all truth. If we mean to live by this rule, it should not be merely from obedience, though it is, but from a heart of love towards others. And not just loving those who love us back, because Jesus continued and said in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus is just stating an obvious truth here. It's easy to love people who love you back. It's easy to say nice things about someone who says nice things about you. You see this sometimes when someone introduces someone else. Oh, here's my friend so-and-so. He's very trustworthy and the most sincere person I know. And immediately after being introduced, what does so-and-so say? Oh, thank you. You're too kind. But really, you are my example. Anything good I am is because I'm learning from you. And so it goes. It's very easy to reciprocate when someone is generous toward you or kind to you. It's not so easy to love someone who hates you or even someone who just isn't that into you. 
Sadly, in our brokenness, sometimes we cling to people who don't respect us. I remember a movie where a certain character was always made fun of and mistreated by a group, and in the end, he went along with them anyway. And finally, he, he sees how bad they are. Wants nothing more than to be accepted by this group that makes fun of him all the time. But we don't have to be unhealthy when we love those who do not love us back. We need to keep our own hearts pure. It's important to protect ourselves from being mistreated, but we must be so secure in who we are in Christ that when we are badly treated by others, we do not let that bring us down. What Jesus is teaching here is just as radical today as it was then. I heard one of my favorite preachers preach this passage. And in the introduction of the sermon, he talked extensively, almost like he was preparing the congregation ahead of time, how difficult this passage was going to be. (laughs) It is. It's difficult to read. It's difficult to preach. It's difficult to have preached to you. I know this. In my human nature, much of this passage is repulsive. And it makes me wonder how I will ever get this quite right. Really, I want to resist this teaching. I do not want to love my enemies. I do not want to bless those who curse me. I don't want to bear insult without retaliating. I don't want to give to anyone who begs from me. I don't want to lend without expecting something back. I don't want to do any of these things, at least not in my flesh. And yet I want to honor Christ. I want to serve him well. I want to be able to understand that what I do for the least of these I have done for him. I want to have his love toward me flow back out of me so that my family and you and everyone I encounter knows there's something about this guy, some kind of love that's clearly showing itself. And I made this point already, but it's important enough to return to now. What possible empowerment can we have to obey this and live it out better? We must have the Spirit of Christ in us. Now, to be sure, we will not be trying to earn our salvation by obeying this passage or any other. If we are in Christ, if we have put saving faith in him, if we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, then obeying these commands or disobeying them has no bearing on our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet, as the Reformers made clear, that while it is by faith alone we're saved, it is not a lonely faith. In other words, a true faith is accompanied by good works that flow from a changed heart. When we realize that we fall short, we plead mercy and empowerment to improve the next time. We continually appear before the throne of grace, begging for his help to live out this life. We have a supreme example to follow, Jesus Christ the Lord who loved his enemies. Jesus Christ the Lord who does good to those who hate him. Jesus Christ the Lord who prayed for those who abused him. Jesus Christ the Lord who did not defend himself when he was abused and insulted. Jesus Christ the Lord who gave life to the beggar, who did to others what they would have wanted someone to do for them. While it was necessary to make the point that we must not take this to mean that we should look for opportunity to be wounded or stolen from or become someone who has never has a dime for his family because he gave it all to beggars. I don't think most of us err on that side. I think the tendency, rather, is to err on the other side where we care too much for our own interests and too little for others. It's easy to love those who show love back to you and much harder to love those who do not. 
Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If we love him, it's because he first loved us. And if we love those who hate us, it's for the same reason. Charles Spurgeon said this, The publican stood far off and beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, that man had the finest theology of any man in all England. Even though the man wasn't from England when he said that. But the point is, if that's your heart before the Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, you've got better theology than most Christians do. And in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian, the main character, is having recalled to him all the failures, all the sins, and Satan is telling him back and accusing him, he answers this. He says, all this is true, and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful, ready to forgive. If someone comes and accuses you and says, you're this, you're that, you're that, you know, you say like this guy did and say, yeah, you're right, and a lot more that you don't even know about. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. We've got a tough job before us. It's tough love. Not tough love that is harsh or hard on someone, but tough love that is tough for us to live out. It's tough to demonstrate, yet it is in our hearts where this love must begin. Indeed, this is a very tough sermon. A tough challenge for us. Yet God has not left us without the means to live it out. We cannot consistently live out these commands if we do not have the heart of Christ. But he generously gives us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Perhaps we should ask ourselves that if we are in Christ and have been given a new heart and a new spirit, how can we find it so difficult to live out these commands? Because we still battle with the flesh. Paul teaches all about this in Romans 6 and other places. We need to understand that any action we take that is against the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Bible, is sin. Anything we do against Jesus, anything we do against Scripture is sin. We must not say we have not sinned, otherwise we have deceived ourselves, Scripture tells us in 1 John. When we are confronted with our own sin, when we look at the passage of Scripture and it clearly shows us we have failed, then we are to confess that sin, repent of that sin, turn from that sin, reject our desire to sin, fight against that sin by properly applying Scripture to our hearts. If you're in Christ, though, you are no longer a slave to sin. If you find this passage on tough love is piercing you to the heart, that you feel convicted that you are not leaving this out, that is because God, through his word, graciously and by the action of the Holy Spirit in your heart, has been kind enough to call you to repentance once again, that, he may live, that you may live out the life he's called you to. And he reminds you as well that you are not a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Before you came to Christ, your nature was to sin. 
But now your nature is righteousness. When your nature was to sin, sin was normal. And righteousness, if it ever did happen, was against your nature. But now if you're in Christ, your nature is righteousness. Your nature is to serve God. And when you sin, it's against your nature. Do you see the difference? Before you come to Christ, your nature is to sin. So if you accidentally do righteousness, it's against your nature. But once you're in Christ, your nature is righteousness. And when you sin, that was against your nature. And you need to recognize that so that you can live not enslaved to your sin, but with victory over it. And Paul writes in six, uh, Romans 6, 22 and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's tough love. It's tough to live. It's tough to have the heart of Christ when all we want to do is hate those who hate us, yet he calls us to a higher standard. And perhaps you look at this passage and hate it. You don't want to love your enemies. You don't want to do good to those who hate you or bless those who curse you or pray to those who, for those who abuse you. And yet you desire to serve Jesus, your king, with all your heart. So within you there's a conflict that never seems to end. Let me tell you, that until we are perfected in Christ, which either happens when you die and enter into eternity or he comes again, this fight will continue. But you have not been left without weapons for this fight. If you feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are miserably failing in this area of obedience to Jesus, step one is to repent of that. Lay it out before God. Confess it before him. And maybe you need as well to confess it to someone as well. Then, when you've done that, step two is to believe God's word that says you are forgiven. For many people, step two is harder than step one. And then step three, ask his help to obey. You see, when God gives us marching orders, he does not send us without any help. So ask God Ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would fill you with fresh power to serve him well. Step four, then, is stay in close community with other believers that will show you by example and who will encourage you in your faith and who will love you so that you will be more able to love others. This faith is to be lived out in community. Don't try to go it alone. Wash, rinse, repeat. Keep going back to his word to be challenged to live the life he's called you to. Keep going back to his word to be encouraged that he will help you do it. Be in his word daily. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your message this morning to us.